Romans chapter 8. And uh, the plan today is to cover verses 28, 29, and 30. And uh, I think we should be able to uh, get through that today. This passage is extremely well known. Particularly verse 28, I think, gets quoted a lot. And a lot of us rely on it when things get dark and we can't see uh, how anything in life could be good. And yet we're reminded from Romans 8.28 about um, the fact that God is actually working all things together for good um, and for our good. And uh, that helps us in those times. Um, But if you read into verse 29 and 30, and we're going to do that today, you will see that uh, it can be a can of worms. And I I don't say that uh, to disrespect God's word because actually it's beautiful. And I think the doctrine in there, what's being taught, is beautiful. But I say can of worms in the sense that the problem with a can of worms, you open it up and now you've got these worms everywhere. And you, you have to deal with each one of them. And there are a lot of them, right? And it's the same way with verses 29 and 30 that uh, there are a lot of things to deal with. And they can be controversial. And they require some explanation, some description. It requires some time to think about each little piece and how it fits together and how it works together, okay? That is not my goal for the day. That's my goal for next week, is to go through those things. I'm desirous to get to what is being taught in 29 and 30. I'm desirous to take it apart with you and think about it and understand and put it in the context of Scripture and, and see what we can learn from those things. But my goal today is not to open the can of worms. My goal today is see what is the purpose of the can of worms. So we have this passage, and we're going to talk about today why Paul has it here, what he means to accomplish by it. And so we want to look at it as a whole. We want to look at what he's trying to accomplish, what is intended here, and then next week, we will open it up and look at each of the parts and examine them. And, by the way, if that takes multiple weeks, then we'll take multiple weeks. I think we can, maybe can do it in one week. But the reason I tell you that in advance is so that you and I will both have some discipline as we're going through today's passage. Because I will tell you, as I was writing this message, as I was studying for it, I really kept wanting to examine each of the aspects. I I kept wanting to explain and describe and, and, and put it all together for you. And that's next week, Lord willing. All right. So I had to have discipline all week and now it's your turn. Okay. So for the next 40 minutes or so, let's look at the purpose of the whole can. Let's look at what Paul is trying to accomplish by telling us the things that he has told us in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. Okay? Can you do that? Well, just, just no. Gene, Gene says, no, well, the door's over there, Gene. <laughs> All right, so let's work together and let's look at just these verses and see what God has for us, why they're placed in this passage, why right here in Romans 8, and then who cares? What does it matter in my own life, in the context of my life? So, We're in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We recall and remind ourselves and one another of who you are. That you are God. Almighty. Unchangeable. And you care for us. You care for us so much that that you are working all things, not some things, not the big things or the little things or the nice things, all things together for our good. And so we're humbled before you and we praise you and bow down to you. And Father, as we come to this passage, there's a danger that we might be too familiar with it. And we already know what it says, and we already know what it means, and we've already relied upon this verse for years and years and years, and Father, I pray that you would be at work, even this morning, by your Spirit, to take your word and apply it to us, teach it to us, instruct us from your word. Pray that your spirit would be at work to change our hearts, encourage our hearts, and to draw some to yourself. So we look for your blessing and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as uh, Pastor Woody alluded to, and uh, we really don't have to make much allusion to, our world is, is in chaos. If you took the time to go back and look at the major headlines just this year, it's, it's crazy. I went back and looked at a little of that. You remember when Australia was burning? It seems like 20 years ago. And that was like January. That was this year. Of course, the COVID-19 thing. Coming out of nowhere and is it going to affect us? And boy, did it ever affect us. And then the resulting toilet paper shortages, I didn't see that one coming. I don't think anybody saw that one coming. Um, and then murder hornets. I, I never did find out what those were, but apparently they went away. I haven't heard much about them recently, but that, that's a big deal. That was, that was going to be a big deal. And then, of course, the killing of George Floyd and the resulting racial and civil unrest. And in light of all of that stuff, in the context of all of that stuff, Your pastor comes out and preaches a message about how all this is good. Is all this good? Well, if we ask that question, is all this good? Of course the answer is no. No, it's not all good. We can see that there is evil 
there's chaos. There's destruction in this world. We don't have to look far. It's not that those things are good. However, not only is the answer to that a big no, but there's a a bigger however that needs to hang off at the end of it when we say no. Romans 8.28, our passage for today is widely known. It's very often quoted. It's uh, frequently misunderstood. But it's prominent. And our goal today is is to look at how Paul intended for this verse to be understood in its native context of Romans 8. And then secondly, having understood what it means in its native context, we want to understand what it means in our native context. It's a promise. What does it mean for me? And so that's our goal for today. Notice, first of all, that he says there in 828 that everything is for good. Everything is for good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The first thing I want to notice is that God accomplishes good. God accomplishes good. That is at the heart of 828. Though the chaos and the evil that we see at work in this world truly is chaotic and truly is evil, yet God works those things in such a way as to accomplish His purposes, His good purposes, the things that God brings about for our good. Ephesians 1.11 speaks to the same point. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. He really is over all things. He really can work with every little detail and giant thing to work it together for His purpose, to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. Even in times when you can't find good in the world, you you look, you, you read the news, maybe your life is in chaos, maybe your health is destroyed, maybe you're at a moment of crisis and you look around and you can't see good. How can there be good in this? Even in those times, he is accomplishing his good purposes. Even when it seems like God and his kingdom are opposed at every turn, politically, in the media, people's lives, your own sin and temptation, it seems like everything is against God and his people. In that context, he is working good. Those those elements of opposition to him wind up actually being instruments in his hand to accomplish the good that he wants to accomplish. That's a truth that we need to start off with. That's a truth as I look around the room and I, I see tragedy, difficulty, struggle, hardship, opposition, fear. You need to know. You need to know today. This is who our God is. It doesn't matter how bad a thing looks to you, and things can look really bad and be really bad. And yet God can work and does work for his children in that situation to turn that instrument of evil into an instrument of good 
to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. This good thing for you. I want to notice, second of all, that it's for a particular people. For a particular people. This isn't just broadly. This isn't a promise that's given to the whole world that you can tell your unbelieving friend, hey, God is working this difficulty out in your life for your good. You don't know that. You don't know that. This is a promise for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, for the person who's outside of that group, for the person who doesn't love God, the person who is not called according to His purpose. This promise is not for them. So you would be terribly misleading your neighbor if that's what you told him. This promise is for a particular people. It's for those who love God, for those who are called according to his his purpose, and for those people, for that group, he is working and accomplishing good. So it's for a particular people. And then thirdly, it's for his own purpose. Notice that it says, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God has a plan in mind. He has something that he is accomplishing. He has something that he is aiming at. And and it might be very different from what you and I might wish he would aim at. But he's accomplishing his good purpose. He has a purpose for which he has called his people. And that purpose is something other than their comfort and enjoyment. That's not his highest priority. That's not his highest goal. The message many people in churches today hear and believe is that God's greatest focus is us and our happiness. Those people are misled. That's a man-centered theology. It stands in opposition to the biblical theology, the biblical understanding, which has God at the center. And we've been created for his purposes. I'm not the center. I like to tease my kids when I'm exhibiting selfishness to them, which I do. <laughs> I like to tell them that it's because I'm the center of the world, right? And, I, and when they're three, they're probably like, oh, I guess dad's the center of the world. <laughs> I didn't know that. But it's meant, it's meant to point out that's a ridiculous position for me, really me, even in my own family, that I would think I'm the center of that world. Much worse, that I would think I'm the center of the entire world, that you exist to serve me, that God exists to serve me. The biblical concept as taught by Jesus, as taught by the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, the whole counsel of God is that God is at the center. It's a confession of sin when I say I'm the center of the world. Because God is at the center of the world. The story of the Bible is so much bigger than just God doing what he can to make our lives better. That's not scripture. The Bible is primarily about God. It's primarily about what he is doing, what he's accomplishing, what he is going after, what his purposes are. And it would be amazing enough if God just let us in on the wonderful things that he's doing. I mean, we pay money, right, to watch sports, to watch a guy who can, you know, dunk a basketball or, or throw a football a mile or whatever. We, we watch, we pay money to watch those things, to watch someone else perform. And we think, that's amazing. I wish I could do a tenth of that. That's so great, right? It would be wonderful if God let us watch him perform. Just let us in. Here, I'll give you front row seats to what I'm doing. 
that would be amazing and wonderful. But it's so much more than that that he wraps us up so that it is actually our good that he's accomplishing. So not only does he let us watch him do amazing things, but those amazing things include our good to benefit us. That he includes us into that. In other words, his own purpose is not primarily about our good, but it most certainly includes our good for the Christian. So I've said good, you know, 20 times so far. I've not defined it yet. What is the good that he's working towards? Well, verse 29 tells us that. 29 talks about the good that we can expect. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The first thing I want to notice is that God determines the recipients. It says those whom he foreknew. He had a particular group of people in mind from before time began and he determined that this group would be the recipients. They would be the objects of his activity described in these verses. Those whom he foreknew. There's a group. And those are the ones he's acting on behalf of. Now, we'll put off till next week the discussion of how that group is formed and what exactly does it mean that he foreknew, etc. I want to talk about that, but I don't have time today. We're going to punt on that until next week so we can focus on it. But there is a group that he foreknew. And for those people, he acted. And he acts all throughout these verses. He determined who the recipients would be of those actions, of His grace. This is a discussion of His grace. Does God display His grace throughout the world to believer and unbeliever alike? Of course He does. So when I say He determines the recipients, I'm not saying that's the only place grace is located and there is no grace anywhere else. Of course, you you can look at your life and look at the people around you and you know that God's grace is on display. God's grace is at work in their lives. Believers and unbelievers alike have families, happy relationships, fulfilling jobs, financial benefit, happiness in life. The rain falls on the godly and the ungodly alike. Yet God shows His grace to this particular group, those whom He foreknew. He shows His grace in a particular saving way so that they become the recipients of this good, this benefit. So the first thing I want to notice is that God selects, chooses, determines the recipients who that group will be. And secondly, God sets the plan. God sets the plan. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Foreknowledge is about the group. Predestination here is about what He's going to do with that group. The destination, predestination. What He's going to accomplish, the things that He's going to do. God sets what the plan is. Namely, that He will conform them to to the image of His Son. He predestined them for that. He set the plan. He decided the course that was going to be done. He decided what was going to happen with these people. Not just 
not just identifying the group, but determining what would be with them, what would be in their lives. And it's to be conformed to the image of His Son. Sanctification. Every Christian wants to be sanctified. Every Christian wants to put off that pesky sin and honor God with his life. Every Christian wants that. He desires to grow in sanctification, to be rid of sin, to be made more and more like Christ in his life. Every Christian wants that. That's a part of what it means to receive a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, is that we desire to be like him. We want the things of God. And so when it says here, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's talking about what he's going to accomplish in the life of a believer. But in the context of Romans 8, there's something more specific that I want us to see and I want us to think about. We said that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What are the all things? How do we define what all things means? Well, all things means all things. But he has something more specific in mind here in the context that we can narrow it down to. And you don't have to look very far. If you just glance back up at verse 17 of this same passage, which, which begins this section of this passage, it talks about the fact that we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with Christ. Suffering. Why is he discussed suffering in that point? Well, then you look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing. Don't even mention the same sentence with the glory that's to be revealed to us. The glory is so great that the sufferings, they, they turn to nothing in comparison. He's talking about suffering in the Christian life because Christians suffer. And not just because we're human and, and the, the human state involves suffering. There's something much more specific about the Christian. Christian suffering is what he's discussing right here. Now, why do I mention that? Why, what's my point? My point is that when we read that God causes all things to work together for good by conforming us to the image of Christ, the all things he has in mind are your sufferings. Primarily, that's what's in his mind here, your sufferings. Do you have suffering? Yes. You don't even have to answer that. No raising of hands. You've got suffering. You have had suffering. You suffer from the things that you suffered in the past. You suffer from the things that the people around you suffer. You suffer from the things that you fear might happen in the future. Suffering is a part of your life. Suffering is often where you find yourself. It's rare that everything is just going great and there's no aspect of, it just really stinks in my life. That's a rare, rare thing. God has, as the all things in this discussion, what he has in mind is our sufferings primarily. So what he's saying is that God uses the trials and the hardships of life to work sanctification in us. What has He predestined us for? Those of us who are in Christ, what are we predestined for? To be conformed to the image of His Son. How does He do that? By working all things together for that good. What are the all things? Your sufferings. 
It's like a chisel in your life, working away, chipping away, fashioning you to be the way he wants you to be. And suffering is a primary cause of how he does that. In this passage, that's what he's focusing on. This is the good that God is working. And so what's the application? Well, I think it's very clear. Rejoice in your trials. I I can hardly believe I just said that. Rejoice in your trials. Are you kidding me? You know what a trial is? You know what suffering is, right? It's something you don't rejoice in. But he says rejoice in your sufferings. God is at work by means of suffering in your life to form you, to conform you to the image of His Son. Those sufferings, those trials, those hardships are what God has determined to help you be conformed to the image of Christ. So rejoice in your trials. I know trials are painful. I know trials are painful. And trials can be just evil. But there is a giant however. God is at work in this difficult, hard, painful thing to conform me as His child to the image of His Son. And thirdly, that is to the glory of Christ. It's to the glory of Christ. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that, purpose statement, in order that He, Jesus, His Son, the Son of God, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why did Jesus come to die? There are a lot of reasons. A very great reason is so that He would redeem a people for Himself to bring back to God, to put on display as the fruit of His redemption. And not just to people who are saved, they escape the the flames of hell, but a people who have been changed, have been conformed to Him so that He returns to God, as it were, with a train of people behind Him who look like Him, who have been made to be like Him, have been conformed to His image. And this glorifies Christ. This shows Him off. This puts Him on display as the Redeemer, as the victor who has liberated all of these and not just liberated them and they come out limping and scarred and everything else. No, He has conformed them to be like Him. And He brings them and He puts them on display. They're on display before the world. Ephesians 3.10 says they're on display before the heavenly beings. And they're on display before God. This is what Christ has done. And so this is accomplished for the glory of Christ. God is working all things for our good. And that good is our conformity to the image of His Son and for a purpose to glorify Jesus Christ. I'm still not at the center. Even though I'm wrapped up in it, so all the good that's being done to me is still true and it's good, but it's not ultimately about me. He's doing a work in me so that He can put me on display and thereby glorify Jesus. This is still theology about God, about Christ. And so what's our application here? 
you need to know, Christian, that your sanctification is not just about you getting over that hang-up. It's not just about you uh, walking with Jesus a little bit more so that you enjoy your life more or so that things go better for you or anything like that. Your sanctification is ultimately about glorifying Jesus. And as a Christian, that's what you desire, is to glorify Him. So we need to know that. We need to keep that in mind. Jesus didn't just save you so that your eternity would be better. He saved you to form you into a citizen of the new creation, to make us fit for heaven, to make us look like Him. So what's our life about after we are saved? It's not just rejoicing that things are going to be great in eternity. There is a giant aspect of that, but it's also a realization that he's at work right now, conforming me to the image of his son, fitting me for heaven even now while I'm on this earth. It brings us to verse 30 in the big picture. The big picture. And those whom he predestined, He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he predestined, he also called. You see, the the foreknowing is something that God has done in eternity. It's, It's by himself. The predestining, putting together the plan... That's something God has done in eternity by himself. Of course, it's revealed in the practical aspects of our life during sanctification, etc. But the, the foreknowing was in eternity by God himself. The, the plan, putting together the plan, is in eternity by God himself. And the calling is when God reveals all of this to the recipients. This is where it touches time. This is where it touches you and me. Is this calling. Those whom he predestined, having put together the plan of he, that he was going to shape them, he's going to conform them to the image of his son, having accomplished all of that, having done that, he now reveals it. He now calls those that he has foreknown and predestined. Until that calling, the recipients didn't know who they were. They didn't know that they were in that group and probably didn't even care. So this calling, this revelation to the recipients is when the eternal plan intersects with time and intersects with me. And now I know, I see myself, oh, this is me. This isn't just God's plan out there somewhere that affects stars and time. and It affects me. I am in this story. And those whom he called, he also justified. Salvation is by justification. He comes right back to this theme in Romans that he's not been able to get away from. He has hit this again and again. He has developed it. He has taken it apart and developed the parts. He's arguing that our salvation is by justification. He says, those whom he called, he also justified. In the Old Testament, as in the New Testament, we are justified by faith. He made that argument in chapter 4, pointing all the way back to Abraham and said he was justified by faith. Pointing even to David, the hero of the Jews. No, he was justified by faith. Justification has always been by faith. They 
weren't trusting in works of the law or some personal righteousness of their own to commend them from God. He says, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. When he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins Uh, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's David speaking in the Old Testament because it's that important that we understand that salvation is by justification through faith. They and all other Old Testament saints were justified by faith as are we. That is what is true for us as well. Paul concludes Romans 4 with these words. He said, Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Even in this list, brief list of this, uh, the big picture, the overview there in verse 30 of, of what is going on, even in that brief list, we see that justification makes the list as a key part. Paul can never get away from justification. And we can never get away from justification. And so what's the application here? There there may be some here who are still not justified before God. That they stand before God at enmity with Him. There's a distance between them and God caused by their sin, caused by their rebellion against God. And they're still thinking that there's something that they can do, something to achieve, something to accomplish, something about them that will make it okay between them and God. You still think you're able to do whatever it is that you think God requires. But God is not mocked. Your efforts won't do. Before God... You are actually guiltier now having tried to do what it takes to be saved than you were when you first started. You've actually become guiltier before God. And you need to realize how futile your own efforts have been. You need to realize that you have achieved nothing. You've gone the wrong direction. You are not better off before God. You need to realize that only the Son of God could do what is required to appease God, to please God, to meet God's standard, to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished for you, from obeying in your place where you've not to paying the infinite penalty that it would take you an eternity to pay. That Jesus is the one who has accomplished this. And the only way for us to be justified is to have His righteousness applied to my account. That's the only way I can be justified before God. And so the call today is for you to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him. Stop trusting in whatever else it is that you might be trusting and believe in Him. And you will find that He gives you His righteousness. You will find that you have peace with God. You will find that God begins to work everything for good in your life, even the sufferings, even the misery, even the hardship, to accomplish that good purpose, to conform you to the image of His Son. You'll find that you've been forgiven before God. 
that that old enmity between you and him is gone. You've been redeemed. So that's the application for some of you this morning. Thirdly, this all ends in glorification. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What started back in verse 17 and 18 as a discussion of suffering. And then he led through and talked about how, yeah, we have the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And, and he, he prays for us the way, it ought to, the way we ought to pray. He groans for us before God. He's interceding for us in the context even of that suffering when we don't know how to pray. His Spirit is within us at work, interceding for us. And He is at work accomplishing it bringing all the things of life, all the sufferings of life in our lives for our good, to conform us to the image of His Son. And the end of all of that is glorification. Glorification. It's interesting. You'll notice, if you're a grammar person, and there are a few of you, those whom He justified, past tense, He also glorified, past tense. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, how can that be? Shouldn't it say that he will glorify? He will surely glorify in the future? That's not what he says. He speaks of it in the past tense. In Paul's mind, this is such a sure thing because it is God who is at work doing these things from the beginning. It is such a sure thing that you can speak of this future event as if it had already happened. Maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe that sounds like a reach. I don't watch a lot of sports. I never really have. I grew up with one TV channel in my house, and so I, I just couldn't really care about sports. And uh, I like to play them. I didn't care to watch them. And so when I watch the Super Bowl, which is the only football game I watch every year, I watch the Super Bowl, and particularly on years when it's a blowout, there'll be time left on the clock. And what do people do if, it, you know, it's a blowout? They crowd the field already, and the confetti, and the cameras, and the people, and all this kind of stuff. And the athlete in me is thinking, there's still time on the clock. Of course, they're not going to score four touchdowns in, in 18 seconds. But there's time on the clock. It's not over. But it's over. It's over. It's all done. It's in the bag. It has been accomplished. Go ahead and go on the field 18 seconds early with your confetti and your camera. It's still future. But it is that certain that you can speak of it in this way. And that's what's in Paul's mind here as he speaks of this future event, our glorification, when there will, we will be revealed for the creation, the new creation that we are in Christ. When, when this process of conforming us to the image of His Son is finally perfected in glory and we will be revealed. And He will put us on display and Jesus will brag about us. I've had some people brag about me, and, and if you're honest with yourself, anytime someone brags about you, just shake your head and you think, if you only knew. If you only knew. Jesus knows. And He works in your life in such a way that in glory He will brag about you and what He's done in you. And He knows he works even those things together for your good. That's what's going on here. Paul is so convinced that we will see these events take place that 
he recognizes that it is God who is the subject doing all of these things. Does God fail in his plan? Never. He will accomplish this. And just as he accomplished foreknowing, just as he accomplished predestining, just as he accomplished calling, just as he accomplished justification, he will accomplish glorification. That certainly. Paul uses similar language in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, When we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is talking about a present reality, but he's talking about the fact that the future reality is every bit as certain. So, what's the can of worms about? The can of worms is in the context of your suffering, of your trials, of your pain. And in the midst of all of that, you ask the why questions. I ask the why questions. We don't get an answer from that, but we get an answer here. I don't know exactly why. I don't know all the details why. But I know, Christian, why is that situation going on in your life? Because he is using it to conform you to the image of his son. He's shaping you. And so when we face trial, when we face difficulty, when we face pain, when we're coming up on it or we're reflecting on it, we need to remember the however. No, this thing is not good. The situation's not good. However, God, who has all power, is at work in your situation, even the impossible ones, to accomplish good for you, to accomplish good in your life, to shape you and change you, to conform you to the image of His Son. And so we can find comfort and we can find joy and we can understand when Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. He's not just really bold and really tough. He understands what's really going on. So what's the can of worms for? It's comfort. It's encouraging. It's to give us a peek behind the curtain into what God is doing in this situation that I can't stand. But I see that behind it, God is at work to conform me into the image of His Son. And one day, He's going to take me and He's going to hold me on display and say, Look here, did you see this person conform to the image of my Son? And so I can rejoice and I can praise the Lord even in this context. Let's pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Father, we do bless your name. 
And we thank you for these truths that are, this, this is not just a, a softball, oh God, uh, God's doing something good. And there, there's, there's grit and depth and root and goal and purpose in these words. Father, I pray that you would take these truths and that, that we would cast ourselves on you and your purpose that we would trust in you when we can't see how it could possibly be true. And yet having seen behind the curtain that you are indeed at work, accomplishing your glorious purposes in our lives, that we can take comfort and we can find strength to persevere, trusting in you, obedient to you, looking to you in the midst of trial. Father, I pray that for these here. I know there are some who are suffering. There are many who are going through trials, difficulties, pain. Pain every waking and sleeping moment. And I pray that you would comfort them with these words by your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all. I trust that you were disciplined and uh, look forward to opening the can of worms next week. But be encouraged by what God is doing in these words. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.